A reading from today is on page 434 in the Blue Bibles provided. Daniel chapter 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. This first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked and behold, another, like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke into pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it and it had ten horns. I considered the horns and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, which before a little one before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of man and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thorns were placed and the ancients of days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season in time. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the son of man and he came to the ancient of days. He was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all of this. So he told me, told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke into pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And at about and about the ten horns that were on its head and the other horns that came up and before which three of them fell. The horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the ancients, ancient of days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said... As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones, and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law." and they shall be given into his hand. For a time, times and a half a time, but the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom, kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me and my colour changed, but I kept the matter in my heart.
What was the scariest monster for you as a child? You know the one I'm talking about. The, the first one that you saw uh, in a book or on TV or from a scary story that your older brother told you because he was just a nasty guy and wanted to be beastly to you. Do you remember how it felt to be uh, tucked into bed and want to leave the light on because you, know, you were afraid that the beast would get to you? Perhaps you still feel that way sometimes. Kids, perhaps you still <laughs> have some of those concerns. Well, that feeling, that is the kind of feeling that Daniel wants you to feel in this chapter. He wants you to get a sense of that terror. But don't worry, he has a way better light for you to leave on that will scare away the monsters. And so this morning we are going to consider three main things from Daniel chapter 7, three main kingdoms. Number one, the kingdoms of beasts, two, the kingdom of God, and three, the kingdom of the saints. Now, these three kingdoms won't necessarily be brought up in order in the te of, of the text, so keep your Bibles open as we work our way through them. And before we move to the first kingdom, let me first just ease us back into the book of Daniel, particularly this second half. It's been a few weeks since we preached in Daniel, but also Daniel 7, it marks a, a real shift in the book. From chapter 7 onwards, we move from narrative about Daniel and his friends and their interactions with the various kings of Babylon to what is commonly known as the genre of apocalyptic. You may have heard that term before. It's the same genre as the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible. And for many of us, especially those of us who grew up in church, the monster that gave us nightmares was actually the book of Revelation itself. You know, with all of its images and its symbols and beasts and dragons and fantastic visions, you know, the content itself of the book of Revelation could strike fear into the heart of any earnest interpreter. But the task of interpreting it sometimes was even more fearful for some. You know, this has been true for many faithful readers of the Bible all throughout the church's history. And I think it's fair to say that, you know, we've had good reasons to be afraid of apocalyptic literature, both in Revelation and in Daniel, especially because in the last couple of centuries, there have been uh, all sorts of wild interpretations of these books. Brad told me just uh, a few days ago, while he was uh, doing his training in Cairns this week, uh, which was you know, counter-terrorism training, there was a hypothetical terrorist scenario uh, where the terrorist hated China. And he quoted Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 to 10 as judgment on China. That was just this week. I mean, if extreme interpretations of Daniel 7 have made their way into that level of common knowledge, then that tells you something about its reputation. And believe me when I say that I feel that same trepidation when reading and understanding Daniel 7, so much so that there are some details about this chapter that, that I think I have a handle on, but I'm not confident enough yet to preach it. But seeing as those details are related to other parts in the rest of Scripture, particularly in the book of Revelation, uh, then, you know, if the Lord delays His return, then I hope in future we will be able to address those details in a series, in a book of Revelation or a series or some core classes or something on the end times. But that said, I also hope that by the end of the sermon this morning, like me, as I studied this chapter this week, that you won't be as daunted by the chapter, but you, that you will actually be encouraged and comforted by all that you really can understand from Daniel 7. 
And that's because even though the details, they do tell us important things and things that are worth studying and that, and that take longer to understand, the central message of Daniel 7 is crystal clear. And I hope it will be crystal clear by the end of my sermon. You know, I'm thankful for the many uh, faithful brothers and sisters who have paid uh, attention to apocalyptic literature, especially in the last century, and from whom we've learned a lot about the genre. And one of the key things for us to grasp when reading apocalyptic is that it uses highly symbolic language, and we ought to handle that language with care. Now, there's nothing wrong with connecting symbols to real-world things. After all, the next chapter of Daniel does so explicitly. But it's important for us to take our cues from the text and be guided by the text in our interpretation. God didn't give us these visions and these symbols to read history through them however we like. And so with all of that in mind, let's come to Daniel 7 and the first kingdom, the kingdoms of beasts. Let's read verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. So this sets up the chapter for us. Notice how we've actually gone back in time from the end of chapter 6. We met Belshazzar in chapter 5. He was the king after Nebuchadnezzar and before Darius, whom we met in chapter 6. And so from this point on, the visions that we see in chapters 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12 are actually come in chronological order from this first year of Belshazzar the king. And right throughout this chapter... There is a focus on seeing and looking. In verse 2, you see it in verse, then I saw in my vision, then as I looked in verse 4, and after this I looked and behold in verse 6. That's just a few. You'll see that right throughout the chapter. One of the reasons this is important is because Daniel is trying to give us a sense of what it was like for him to be in this vision. Ezekiel does a similar thing at the beginning of his prophecy where he describes his vision of creatures and a glorious throne. I remember in Bible college, my professor played us a video of an artist's rendition of Ezekiel chapter 1. And I think it was this video, but even if it wasn't, it still makes the point. Hopefully this will work. Here we go. That's slower than I remember it. Oh, there you go. Kicks back in. And there you go. So as you can see, the the artist has done their best to take the descriptions of Ezekiel chapter 1 and create a 3D model of what it might have looked like. Oh no, that's going to keep looping. I'm going to change it so you're not distracted. (laughs) He tried to create a, a, a 3D model of what that chapter looked like. And what my professor pointed out is that Ezekiel's description is not supposed to be something static that, can, that you can just look at like that. Ezekiel's vision is one of, of trying to put to words the, the, this feeling of awe and wonder and fear as he's presented with these creatures and this glorious throne. So it is with Daniel 7. Daniel is trying to insert us into what it is like to be witnessing all of this, and not just the, uh, witnessing what is happening, but this terrifying scene of, of these beasts who are devouring and stamping and doing all of these things that is absolutely really scary. And so as Daniel describes what he sees, he wants us to get a sense of the terror that he experienced. And what does he see? Well, he sees fantastic beasts and where to find them. The four winds of heaven, they stir up the great sea, which is an image sometimes used in Scripture to refer to the whole world. And that stirring up produces these four great beasts that come up out of the sea. One like a lion with wings of an eagle, Another like a bear raised up on one side. Another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And finally one which is simply described as terrifying and dreadful 
and exceedingly strong. You can imagine what it would have been like to witness these beasts in the vision. With each one as it came out, there would have been a sense of awe and fear in Daniel. Hence, why the first thing he says about the fourth beast is that it is terrifying. So what are we to make of these beasts? Well, several weeks ago, we saw how the text of Daniel from chapter 2, verse 4 onwards shifts from the language of Hebrew to Aramaic. And the Aramaic portion of Daniel actually finishes at the end of chapter 7. So from chapter 2, verse 4, right through to the end of the chapter. And one of the reasons this is significant is because there is some clear connection between chapter 7 and chapter 2. You might recall that we talked about the four parts of the statue in Daniel chapter 2 as corresponding to the earthly kingdoms of Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. Well, I think Daniel chapter 7 here is at minimum referring to these same four kingdoms. The lion was actually a recognizable Babylonian symbol. The lion represented the king, and many were depicted in relief tiles like this one uh, on what's called the processional path, as well as in Nebuchadnezzar's throne room. And one of their gods, Lamassu, was often depicted as a bull or a lion with wings. And so the description of it having its wings plucked off and then being lifted up and made to stand on two feet like a man calls to mind the way that God humbled Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4, where he became like a beast and he had hair that grew like eagle's feathers before he humbled himself and God restored him to his right mind again. The bear raised up on one side shares similarities with the ram of chapter 8, which we'll look at next week. He had two horns and one was higher than the other. In that chapter, which we'll get to next week, the angel tells Daniel that they represent the kings of Media and Persia. And as we know from history, the Persian Empire, which came after, was the stronger one. The leopard with four heads and four wings on its back represents the, the Greek king, Alexander the Great, and his very swift conquering of the Medo-Persian Empire. He basically took the whole thing in an astounding 12 years. And after him were four successes, hence the four heads. Finally, the fourth beast, the most terrifying, the most powerful, the most dreadful of them all, with its iron teeth and ten horns, calls back to the feet of iron and clay from chapter 2 and the fourth kingdom of Rome that it represented. It also had a rather big-mouthed little horn, which I will come back to. Now, like I said at the beginning, we we need to be careful with what to do with these symbols in apocalyptic literature. What I've just described to you is what I think are reasonable connections of the beasts to real-world kingdoms. And you can totally get lost in debating exactly which one is which. And they are good questions to think about, certainly have relevance to our understanding of God and what He has done and will do in history. But even as you and I continue to consider what some of those details mean, what the implications are for the end times, there is still a big point of this chapter that we must not miss. Consider this. Do these beasts scare you? Maybe not the description, but what they represent. The Roman Empire, as great as it was and greater than the ones before it, is something like 26th on the list of the world empires by size in history. And for all of our talk of human progress since the Enlightenment in the 18th century, the 20th century was one of the bloodiest, if not the bloodiest century so far in history. 
So you see, even though these, these kingdoms that these beasts represent have had their day, who they are continues to rage on in history, as we see in the headlines today. And they are only getting more powerful. Does that make you want to hide under the covers and keep the light on? Well, brothers and sisters, there is hope. Daniel isn't just telling us about fantastic beasts and where to find them. He's telling us that as terrifying and as mighty and as beastly as the earthly kingdoms might seem, they are really as dangerous as a child's teddy bear next to the Ancient of Days. That even though these beasts, as they got worse and worse with each one and continue to, no matter how great, no matter how dreadful an earthly kingdom can get, it will never be able to match the Most High God. And that takes us to our next kingdom, the kingdom of God. You, you wouldn't fear a lion if you had Samson by your side. You wouldn't be scared of a bear if the person next to you was a trained soldier with a flamethrower. You wouldn't be scared of a cheetah if you were standing behind the Black Panther. And you need not be afraid of the most terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong beast with great iron teeth when you trust in the Ancient of Days. Let's read from verse 9. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Once again, Daniel wants you to get a sense of the majesty and the grandeur and the glory of the Ancient of Days. Thankfully, there aren't too many attempts to, to make a video out of this because no attempt would ever capture what it must have been like to see this. There's a great old word that we, uh, we don't use much anymore, but that I think is helpful to describe this scene, partly because we don't use it very much, and that is the word Effulgence. A couple of excited, you know that word, effulgence. It means to shine brightly and to be radiant. The effulgence of the ancient of days here, it, it takes your breath away. That is what it is meant to do. His perfect purity is captured in his white as snow clothing and his hair like pure wool. His greatness is seen in his throne of fiery flames and the fire that comes out before him. His omnipresence is represented by the wheels of burning fire. And his reign is seen in, his, in the thousands and the tens of thousands that stand before him and serve him. It is a glorious, it is an awesome scene. As I mentioned before, Ezekiel 1 has a similar description of God's fiery throne and Revelation 4 and 5 also depicts the glory and the effulgence of God's throne. And this isn't the only instance that we see of God's heavenly throne room in the Bible. Now we need to pause here for a moment. Because if you thought the beasts were terrifying, then imagine standing before God's throne. 
the one who destroyed the terrifying beast. After Daniel saw this, he was still anxious and alarmed by what he's seen. You see, it's, it's one thing to stand behind the Black Panther when the cheetah is coming at you. It would be an infinitely more terrifying thing for him to turn on you. Brothers and sisters, do you recognize how great and how awesome the Ancient of Days is? Because only a right grasp of this will truly give you comfort when you face the beasts. And Daniel gives us another reason for this. You see, not only is Daniel chapter 7 the only time you see the name for God, uh, Ancient of Days, in the Bible, but here we see God's judgment that will later be picked up and expanded on by John in Revelation. God's power and authority to judge all the beastly kings and kingdoms of the world, indeed all people that oppose him, they're seen in verses 11 and 12. And did you notice how right throughout these first 12 verses, even in the midst of the terrifying description of the beasts, God's sovereign hand was still behind it all. You see it all in the, in the passive descriptions of the first eight verses. The, the, wings, the first beast's wings, they were plucked off. The bear was told. The leopard was given dominion. The fourth beast was, as verse 11 tells us, killed. And each of the other beasts, their dominion was taken away. You see, the Ancient of Days, he cannot be overpowered by these beasts. He is the one who will bring final judgment on all kings and all kingdoms. But incredibly, he's not the only one in the room. Let's read from verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Verse 13 is probably the verse that gets the most attention from commentators and scholars in the whole book of Daniel. And that's because who the Son of Man is makes all the difference to your understanding of this chapter. Now, the phrase uh, Son of Man in Aramaic and Hebrew generally just refers to a man. Ezekiel is called a son of man throughout his book, and the term is used in many other places, like in the Psalms, to refer to a mere man, unlike God. Often it is contrasted with the fact that God has power when the son of man does not. Psalm 146 is a good example. But in this context of Daniel chapter 7, you can see why even non-Christian interpreters come to verse 13 and they think, ah, actually, there's more going on here than, you know, just your average bloke riding on the clouds of heaven. The three main suggestions for who this Son of Man is are that he is an, ange an angelic figure or that he is a representative of Israel or that he is a divine, human-like person. And for Christians, specifically, Jesus. I won't go into the details of that discussion, uh, but as a Christian, I think it's obvious how we are to understand who the Son of Man is in verse, seven, verse 13. And before we even go to the New Testament, if you have a look at Psalm 8, then there's already a hint that there's, there's a kind of Son of Man that is greater than just your average bloke. Let me read to you from verse 3 of Psalm 8. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. 
You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. And of course, the author of the Hebrews, of the book of Hebrews in chapter 2, tells us that this psalm pointed forward to Jesus. But the biggest reason why we understand this vision to be about Jesus, that the Son of Man in Daniel 7 is Jesus himself, is because Jesus himself refers to himself as the Son of Man. And he does it quite often throughout his ministry. And to make it even clearer, he basically quotes Daniel 7 in Matthew chapter 24, verse 30, referring to himself. But why is this important? Why does this matter? Most importantly, it tells us that Jesus shares the same divinity as God himself. Did you notice how in verse 9, thrones, plural, were placed, not just one for the Ancient of Days. Now, it could be that there were a range of thrones, multiple thrones, but surely, minimally, given what we see in verses 13 and 14, one of those thrones is reserved for the Son of Man. If dominion and glory and a kingdom were given to the Son of Man, then He is clearly just as kingly as the Ancient of Days. And this is the same image that we see in John's Revelation in chapters 4 and 5. It's not just the Lord on his throne, but Jesus also coming before him, or as some translations put it, at the center of the throne. And he is the one worthy to receive the scroll and be worshipped alongside God in the very same breath. Let me encourage you to go and read Revelations 4 and 5. And we see even in Revelation 7, 17, that Jesus is in the midst of the throne. Do you grasp the, the, the glory, the wonder of this image, of the fact that the Son of Man is on equal terms with the Ancient of Days? John picks up on all of this effulgent imagery and applies it to Jesus so that there is absolutely no doubt about who he is. Listen to how he describes Jesus in Revelation chapter 1. And listen out for some of the allusions to Daniel 7 that he makes. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the, full, the, like the sun shining in full strength. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is the light that scares away the beasts. He is the one in whom we can trust. So many events in our world, both recent and upcoming, must be held up to the light of Daniel 7. Whether it's the Taliban overthrowing 20, a 20-year 20 effort to establish democracy in Afghanistan in two days, or the ongoing war between Russia and the Ukraine, or China buying up land in the Pacific and securing a lease for the Darwin port, or the result of our upcoming election here in Australia. God is reminding us through his prophet and through his apostle that you can take comfort in the fact that they have not and they will not ultimately have power over him. The Ancient of Days and the Son of Man, they sit on their thrones, undaunted, without a shred of fear of even the most powerful kingdom that has ever existed. 
or any kingdom, kingdom that ever will exist. Even if the human race became so powerful that we became an interplanetary system uh, species and set up kingdoms in, on Mars and Venus and wherever else, traveled to distant galaxies, our greatness and our power will always, always be a speck of Martian dust in comparison to his. Is that where your hope lies, brothers and sisters? Are you anxious about the world? Are you anxious about the evil in it? Are you terrified of the, the terrible things that people are capable of? Do not fear. Fear him. The Ancient of Days, He rules. Books of judgment will be opened. And the Son of Man has opened the gates to His eternal kingdom. Look upon His glory. Gaze at His effulgence. See His victory. And let your anxieties be put to rest. Speaking of anxieties, Daniel isn't done. After seeing this incredible vision of the Son of Man riding on the clouds of heaven and being, giving, being given an everlasting kingdom by the Ancient of Days, he describes his feelings of anxiety and alarm at everything that he's just seen. And he asks someone in the vision to interpret it all for him. And the interpreter tells him that the four kings, these four beasts are four kings, as we looked at earlier. But Daniel wants to know specifically about the fourth beast, so he presses him further. What's the purpose of this one, which is far more powerful and terrifying than the others? And the whole point of the ten horns and the one horn and the, who takes out the three and then it defeats and then the little horn with the, with the eyes and the big mouth, what does that all mean? Interestingly, as he's asking this question, you know, more unfolds in the vision while he's asking the one interpreting for him, and we get a glimpse of essentially a replay of verses 9 to 12, where the horn prevails over the saints in war till the Ancient of Days brings judgment upon him and the saints possess the kingdom. And so the interpreter then goes on in more detail about how this fourth kingdom will devour the whole earth and will trample it down. And how the ten horns represent ten kings that will arise. How the little horn represents one which will be different from the others and put down three kings. And this big-mouthed little horn king will speak boldly against the Most High God and he'll make war and wear out the saints trying to change times and the law. And God will give his saints into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. Now, if you're wondering where the various interpretations of the end of days comes from, this is one of the key passages. And as I mentioned earlier, I don't plan to tie up all the loose ends of that issue here this morning. And on top of that, there are more connections here than I can cover. Like, for example, the time, times, and half a time. When you read John's Revelation, he refers to three and a half years, and that corresponds to what he's talking about, or 42 months, or 1,260 days. But I will share with you what I think are the most important things for us to grasp about this fourth kingdom. Firstly, the markers of this kingdom, the ten horns and the little horn and all that, you may have heard, I think I watched a video this week that said something about how the ten horns represent you know, the EU countries or something like that. Uh, but for all of our attempts to try that, there is, there is not a neat connection to any kingdom in history. And more importantly, it's worth considering again how the Apostle John brings all of this imagery into his apocalyptic vision. Have a listen to Revelation 13. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea, 
with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. I get the feeling that we've found these fantastic beasts before. But also hear this from verse 5. And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opens its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. What this tells me, this multiple treatment of the fourth kingdom and John alluding to it in his apocalyptic vision is that there is more going on with this kingdom than it just being Rome. And as many commentators have put it, uh, it seems like what is going on here is a representation of all the earthly kingdoms that will continue to rule this planet and rise and fall until they will finally be judged and destroyed by the coming true king. Do you realize that you are currently living in a kingdom that will one day fall? It can be hard to picture it when, it's, when you're in the moment. But the world's superpowers today will very likely not be in a few centuries. Just as each beast was overtaken by the next one, so that continues to happen today. However great and however terrifying one kingdom might be at any one point in history, it will rise and it will fall as they always have. But there is one kingdom that will go on forever. That is the kingdom that was first ushered in by Jesus' first coming. The one that he announced was at hand in Mark 1.15, that he lived showing glimpses of in his ministry and his life. And the one that he would open the gates to all people for in his sacrificial death on the cross and his resurrection to new life. Jesus has now ascended to the right hand of the Ancient of Days, where he now lives to intercede for his saints and awaits the appointed time when the fourth kingdom will be finally consumed and destroyed. And his everlasting kingdom will be fully established for the first and the last time. His rule, His reign, and His coming give us a sure comfort today, a bright hope for tomorrow, and a glorious eternity to look forward to. And that brings us to our final kingdom, the kingdom of the saints. The saints of the Most High, they shall receive the kingdom and possess it forever. We see it in verse 18 and in verse 22 and finally in verse 27. Let me read that. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Perhaps one of the most surprising and even unbelievable aspects of this vision is the fact that the Most High gives the kingdom of the Son of Man to His saints. Now, mind you, this isn't like a father uh, giving his you know, kids the keys to the house and then going, see you guys later, have fun. No, the king is still the king. But it's incredible to think that his saints, they're not just thrown a few crumbs of the kingdom. 
No, his saints are given the kingdom. This is why the New Testament writers would speak of God's people as being heirs of the kingdom in the new covenant or fellow heirs with Christ, as Paul does in Romans chapter 8. But how do you become one of God's saints? How do you become one who is welcomed into the kingdom and not destroyed by the flames of the throne? Do you have to be saintly? Do you have to live a near-perfect life and perform miracles? Well, friend, if you think that you could never live up to that kind of standard, you're in good company. Let me take you to Revelation again, chapter 5. Look at the reason why the Lamb is worthy to take the scroll. Worthy are you to take it, to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you've made them a kingdom and priests. You receive the kingdom not by being a saint according to your life's work. No, you become a saint and you receive the kingdom by trusting in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. His blood which was shed to pay the ransom for your sin. You don't become a saint by being good enough. You don't become a saint by people looking at your life and thinking, yeah, they were really, really good. We're going to saint them. No, you become a saint by recognizing that you aren't good enough to be one. And that trusting in the Son of Man is what makes you one. The Son of Man, the one who was good enough, who was good for you. If you are yet to do that today, let me urge you to trust in Him. We do not know when Jesus will return. Today might be our last day. And no person can enter the kingdom of God except by His blood. If you're interested in becoming a saint, then I would love to talk to you about that afterwards from just another ordinary bloke who knows that he does not deserve it. And fellow saints, one of the beauties of this truth is that it's not just good news for the day that we were first saved. It's not just good news for the day when we will finally be saved, but it is good news today. We are in the now and the not yet. Christ is reigning now, even though he has not yet finished the work. I love how this is expressed in the new song that we sang this morning. The chorus says, He is here. He is here. Emmanuel, God draws near. The Son of Man, the Messiah, the one that the prophets longed to see has come. Jesus walked the earth and has now ascended to the right hand of God. He reigns. Hallelujah. And yet, He is also still coming. As verse Two of that song says, Son of man in Daniel's dream, glorious mystery now revealed, King of kings on David's throne, his rule and reign will never end. He will bring the exiles home when his advent comes again. Brothers and sisters, the Christian life sometimes feels like you are facing beasts on a daily basis. And every saint throughout history has had to face different beasts, some more terrifying than others. And who knows what terror there is still to come. But know this, not a day of history that has been or is yet to be written has escaped the pen of the Ancient of Days. And that means that whether you get to live a long and fruitful and peaceful life in a kingdom that's more like a koala than a bear, or whether you're torn apart by the most terrifying empire yet, God has shown you the end of the matter. He has won. He will win. And his saints have won and will win with him.
the, the sight of these things happening in our world might alarm you and cause you anxiety. Keep these truths in your heart. Seal them away. Remind yourself of them when the weight of the world weighs heavily on your shoulders. And remember that his saints will reign with his son. At the end of the description of the first beast in Revelation 13, John comforts God's people and calls them to endure. He says this, If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Saints of the Most High God, do not give up. Persevere. Put your faith in Him and find comfort in the one who sits on the throne. Won't you look to His light when you fear the beasts? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, the Ancient of Days, the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven, the one who has no equal, the one who looks down at the kings of the earth and the kingdoms of men, and laughs. Father, we confess that so often the beasts terrify us more than your throne. I pray that we would understand your power and glory and greatness, tremble before you, and then rejoice and find comfort in knowing that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has made it possible for us to be entered into his eternal kingdom and to possess it forever. Father, may we seal these things in our hearts all our days until the day we see him come again. In his name we ask. Amen.